Welcome to Conversations in Clinical Trial Readiness, a series featuring life science executives who share their stories and insights related to clinical operations and clinical trial readiness. My name is Kelly Rich, and I'm the EVP of Product and Clinical Research Solutions at Archimedics. Learn from our experts as they share their key learnings, obstacles, and success stories. Listen in to hear how health and life science organizations can better equip teams and clinicians to accelerate the development and adoption of new clinical treatments and best practices. Welcome to the ArcMedics video and podcast interview series. Thank you to the listeners who are returning for another episode and welcome to first time listeners. Please remember to subscribe to the ArcMedics newsletter um, or hit the subscribe button on your YouTube link. Our guest today is Dr. Atul Mahableshwar Warkar, Senior Vice President of Drug Development of MLX Biosciences. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you uh, to Mary and ArcMedics for inviting me over and appreciate the time to be able to uh, chat with you and hopefully have some conversation that some others might find useful. Absolutely. Why don't we get started by uh, you letting our audience know a little bit about your background. Sure. I'm a psychiatrist by training, had a career in uh, clinical practice and academia before I joined the pharmaceutical industry. And then I've worked in big companies and small companies, uh, uh, seen failures and successes, seen conversions of failures to successes, and sometimes, if I may say, successes to failures as well. And I hope I've uh, learned some things along the way. Yeah, that's great. I think that's what we'll try to um, share with the audience today, as many of your sort of learnings as you've gone through your career. So have you always had an interest in clinical trial methodology? Uh, Not starting off with. Initially, I, I was interested in research. And so when I joined the industry, I was fortunate enough very earlier on to worked with some people who had a very strong interest in methodology and kind of then showed me why methodology was important. Because ultimately what it amounts to what I've seen is that you may have a good molecule, but it will fail because things were not done right. And that was sort of what sparked my interest and I've kind of maintained that uh, over the past 15, 20 years. Yeah, that is really interesting. I've certainly gotten to see that as well in some rescue projects I've participated in where you know, they had something good, but the methodology was unstable. And ultimately, you know, we had to rework things to get through. So I've had a similar, um, similar experience. And certainly for all the patients out there, we don't want good molecules to not not get through, right? No, we don't want good molecules not to get through. And think of it this way. Uh, These are people who are putting their trust in us to come to a clinical trial, altruistically hoping that that information will lead to new treatments or understand things that don't work. So if you have treatments that may work, but because things were not designed properly or conducted properly, they failed. Uh, we're doing a very big disservice other than spending a whole lot of money as well. Yeah, absolutely. We have a responsibility, I think. Um, so you've had extensive experience in designing and conducting clinical trials. And you know many of the people in our audience are just getting going in their careers. Can you share some advice with them about um, how to approach you know, designing clinical trials as they move through their career? I think a couple of things, probably the first thing that uh, I would say is keep in mind that nobody has a monopoly on brains. You may be the smartest person alive, but that doesn't mean the others aren't there. And so be curious and learn from other people. Ideally speaking, learn from other people's mistakes so you don't make them. (laughs) That would be the one thing that I would want to say. And then kind of put together in your own mind sort of a structure of what you would want to look learn and what, how you would want to move forward in the things that you do. 
and also look back after every trial, what might have made it better and what lessons you would learn. I think that, you know, um, despite all of your experience, it's likely that you probably, you know, continue to face some challenges. Um, are there some challenges that you continue to face today that you could share with our listeners? Some challenges, I think, are there for eternity. I had a mentor, a chairman of mine, who had once said, you know, he had found the simplest and the easiest way to cure any illness under the sun. He said, just start a research project and you will not find anybody to, to <laughs> that just takes care of things. Kind of a truism, but re in reality, uh, the problems that always are there are making sure that the right kind of patients get into your trials. So recruitment, timelines, budgets, all of those are practicalities which are sort of there as long as clinical trials will be there. Then over a period of time, things kind of have changed where people are having a, more and more expectations in terms of what a clinical trial is and what a clinical trial might do. And of course, the past year and a half, all of us have been struggling with the COVID and COVID restrictions in our lives in general, and certainly specifically with clinical trials in particular. The other piece I think is that trials these days are a lot more complex and people bemoan that just rightfully so. But the reason they are complex is because there are more and more things expected from the trial. So other than the fact that you want a trial that will give you a clear answer, whether a drug works or not, but you also have it to where it should satisfy the regulators. You need some data to be able to go back to the employers, to the payers, to the pharmacy benefits managers, to patients and their families. And when you have all of those many questions that you need to answer in a trial, isn't it obvious that they get more and more complicated and more and more difficult? And figuring all of that out is kind of what I have seen getting to be a greater challenge over the past five years or so. Yeah, I've seen a lot of statistics about the number of endpoints in a trial just exponentially growing as we continue to yes. try to answer more and more questions with each individual um, project. And then you see the percentages of participants like in patient populations is single digits so low. What would you say about, you know, what can teams do? You know, you've already acknowledged recruitment is really difficult and that complexity is high and this could be kind of a burden for the patients. What can we do to make people want to participate in our clinical trials? I think, uh, you know, sort of have to make trials uh, simple and easier to enroll and be as a part of. I mean, you know, uh, I've just... Uh, I've been a part of putting together some data and presentations for patient centricity and what we have done. And kind of, you know, uh, when you take a look at it, so people say, yes, patient centricity, and nobody's going to say no to that. But understand, what does patient centricity mean? So what may be a successful trial from my perspective or an industry perspective or a principal investigator at sites perspective could very well be very different than what the patient thinks as it. So easy to get into simple and enough to understand. Uh, uh, don't want a 50-page informed consent, uh, which is going to be needing six days to even read through and understand with a dictionary by your side. Mm -hmm. And then kind of, you know, thinking along those lines, sort of moving through the process to make things so that it is easier, comfort convenient for patients to understand, and which is where hybrid trials, decentralized trials, taking this trial to a patient or a volunteer or a participant instead of having to have them come through and realize that for some things it just may not be possible 
if you have to have surgical trials invasive procedures, you can do that. But think of it, put on the hat of a participant and what would make it easier for them? And then what would it make it easier for your sites to where, you know, they would say, oh, so-and-so is running a trial. I think I'd like, I've done work with them once before. I'd like to work with them again, as opposed to saying, good Lord, no, never again with this organization or with this person. You don't want to be in that spot. So think of that. And then that helps in designing trials. Can you tell us about how you provide first-in-class treatment to those with limited or no treatment options? Well, we are not a commercial stage company yet. So what we are doing right now is still in clinical trials. So okay. uh, anybody for anyone to come in would need to be a part of our clinical trials. And again, to be, uh, we are in phase two, uh, running a trial in phase two B. So I cannot even sit up and tell you that way, this is working, that this, works, this properly works, I don't know. So we're trying to understand if it works and what we're doing is we're running a trial in uh, pediatric Tourette's. So, so anybody under 18, between six and 18 are the people that we are recruiting into our trials. And hopefully once this trial is done and assuming that the study is positive, we move on to other trials then we may be able to possibly offer an uh, expanded access program. And I think part of the challenge with that is that for a small company such as ours, uh, we need to make sure that we will be able to continue development mm -hmm. of the molecule, and which sort of would be our limitations. But what we're doing is a first-in-class treatment because uh, what Ecopipam is, is a dopamine D1 antagonist. And there are no other such molecules out on the market or in development. So if this works, that will be our contribution to small, but our contribution to a first-in-class treatment. Yeah, that sounds great. I know you've received orphan drug and fast track designation, you know, from the FDA um, for this program. Can you tell others um, about that designation and how an organization undertakes that? Happy to do that. So uh, it's been some time. Uh, and according to law, any illness in the U.S. that has less than 200,000 patients is designated as an orphan condition. And there are special incentives that are offered to pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs, uh, makes it maybe possibly a little bit easier for clinical trials, more regulatory interactions, and a greater period of exclusivity should the treatment get approved. You know, someone might say, well, in a population of 330 million, 200,000 is not a lot of people. So why would anybody bother? And I think it was because of that mindset, along with the costs associated that Congress passed that law, which is, which is what it's called. Now, there are similar designations out in Europe and Japan. The numbers are roughly different. The definitions are different. But the idea is small illnesses, small populations for which people will not develop drugs. The, the point sort of, I think, uh, what I also want to keep in mind with the orphan designation and status is that you do have to interact with agencies to get those things. And this program has been wildly successful. So in 2019, for instance, there were 23 drugs that were approved as an orphan indication as the first indication of that molecule. And there were almost twice that number that had an orphan expanded indication, though it had been approved for something else. Keep in mind that uh, according to the National Organization of Rare Diseases, NARD, 
there are about 7,000 orphan, ultra rare, ultra rare indications. So altogether, that is a lot of people for whom there are sort of uh, no mm -hmm. answers. And I think part of what has helped me is, I mean, MLX is a small, we are like 13 and a half people right now, uh, mm -hmm. our total employees as a company. But we have a parent organization called Paragon Biosciences, which offers support and with more experience. So if anybody is looking to get into an orphan indication, I would suggest that you work with people who have done that before. Again, going back to my earlier point, learn from other people and hopefully their mistakes so you don't recreate those. So use the same approach to go ahead and uh, learn and then be able to move on with this. It is though a very rewarding field to work in, if things works. Yeah, that's great. Yes, yeah, certainly if it works, right? Yeah. Yes. Did the pandemic impact recruitment for your clinical trials? Uh, the pandemic had a lot of an impact on all of our recruitment and actually not all of it was bad. So let me lay out the scenario for you, okay? Uh, MLX, we started the program with the first site that was approved in May of 2019. So from May of 2019 till say arbitrarily, I pick say end of March as the day where shelter in place took place. So over that 11 month period of time, we had 32 sites, 32 subjects recruited and about 37 sites that were up and running. And we were continuing that process. So from that point on till say a year after that, uh, we added uh, an equal or a slightly more number of sites that were brought up. However, our recruitment went almost to uh, 93 subjects. So we almost, so roughly over the same period of time, we more than doubled and almost tripled the number of participants that we recruited. And I'm happy to say that the study concluded uh, recruitment uh, by, by June, by end of June. So, you know, I think a natural question that you probably might ask me is, what did you do that made this difference, right? Yeah. And you know what happened? The very first thing when this came about, in part, uh, when I say experience is good and you learn, uh, I was also around when the SARS epidemic was going to be happening. Mm -hmm. And we were running some trials and there was a lot of thought that had been put in by people and my team that I was working with around how to manage that. So to an extent, I had a sort of a playbook when it came about. And once it started, very earlier on in February, I remember telling my management, I think this is going to be a big deal. We're going to have to do a lot of changes. And they said, oh, you know, that's a conservative clinician crying wolf. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. So what we did was right up front, we contacted all of our sites to find out there were those that would stay open and those would say, sorry, we're not going to be working. So we put all of our resources into those who said they would be opening, they would be staying open. And then say, well, what are we going to need, right? You have a study to run. You need to be able to get drug to patients. You need to be able to make sure that patients are okay. You need to be able to make sure that you can assess them remotely. So involved uh, a protocol amendment, uh, an amendment to the SAP to permit remote assessments, uh, being able to ship drug remotely. We contracted with some other solution providers where they could actually go to patient sites and conduct some assessments as needed. We put in together pro contracts where HIPAA compliant, but you could sit and conduct interviews over video platforms. Kind of put all that together and uh, we listen to the FDA, to the EMA. I was a, I'm a part of uh, an organization called the uh, 
uh, ISCTM. So organize some meetings, uh, virtual, of course, with mm -hmm. what their impact was and what they recommended, what you would do. So we amended this app, we collected sort of all of the data. And probably we also dealt and interacted with uh, advocacy organizations as well. And through all of that, we were able to keep the right amount of contact with our sites, with everybody who was working with them to, again, make things as simple as possible. And I don't know about other illnesses, but for Tourette's, uh, a lot of patients with Tourette's uh, face challenges in public when they go to schools. You know, kids get made fun of, they're not comfortable. So actually, for some of them, it was a good time. And also with shelter in place, people said, hey, you cannot go out, but going to a visit to a doctor was an essential point of view. So they viewed this as an exciting day out and a visit outside to be able to go out. So sort of putting all of those together was how we were able to maintain and increase, actually increase our pace of recruitment. Yeah, really interesting. Like um, you make it sound like it was uh, easy, but you definitely implemented a lot of changes, right? New technology, um, quickly adapting, you know, procedures and guidances and things like that, which I, you know, I, I felt like the regulators were telling us we should do, that we could do. You know, yeah. they were trying to get information out quickly um, and basically signal that it was okay to be methodical but creative. And then you're right, you sort of have a perfect storm with a patient population that, that might have still been motivated to come to the site and uh, was also maybe not as upset about not having to go to school as other as others were so that's great um so you know you went through a lot of different things that you tried and a lot of new things that you put in place um have you found any um recruitment practices during the pandemic that you're going to consider keeping in the future that that are absolutely now part of your your standard going forward oh, i think moving forward we certainly would uh, very carefully look at all of our visits, all of our study visits, because you know part of the challenge in getting people to sites is getting people to sites and staying there for that long. You know, after all, uh, in uh, pediatric trials or where someone has to take them, you know, uh, right. you've got uh, someone has a family with three kids and two of them have to go to two different activities, then you've got to take one person in and one parent is tied up for four hours makes life so much difficult. So we would work to look at it and assess which visits they, do they have to actually physically be present and which things could be conducted remotely. And then we would put systems into place to say that that is something that we would do. Along with things like, what can you move? You know, just think of it as what could be moved from a site to a subject's home, to a participant's home. And the other thing that I would encourage uh, anybody listening to keep in mind is that, look, uh, I've been a site for industry-sponsored trials. Mm -hmm. And uh, part of anybody who is doing this as a profession, the concern is, so you're going to be taking everything away from me and shipping it all to a patient's home. I've got, what am I going to do with my site, my staff? I've got bills to pay. If you're going to cut me out, why should I work with you? I mean, think of that. And then look at it to say, well, what can be done? What can you do to support your sites and your site staff in what they're doing? And uh, there you will find that there are those who are very active, who will come and tell you what their issues, challenges are, and what the solutions are. Work with those sites. So you're cultivating a group of sites that you have relationships with, that you can work with. 
So I've got uh, uh, sites that I've now worked with for uh, more than uh, 15 years. If we go back a long way. And so when you do that, you're then able to pick up the phone and say, tell me what's the problem? Or they'll pick up the phone and say, you know what? Your IVRS system, I'm sorry to say, is terrible. It is just not working right. Here is the problem that I had to face. And you can then go back and solve some of their issues. Be active in what a trial is and what you are doing. And uh, you'll make, uh, not only will you will your trial go smoothly, but it's quite likely that if the drug has to succeed, if the trial has to succeed, and when I say a trial has to succeed, it doesn't mean that you get a P of less than 0.25. Sometimes it's good to know with your first trial that this is not going to work, but you have an answer. You don't want a trial that you say, I need to run another trial, I don't have an answer. You will get that and you'll have fun doing it and you'll make a lot of friends all over the country. Yeah, all, you know, all over the world. It's interesting, we don't make it all the way through an episode without the importance and value of relationship building coming out no matter what the topic is, right? So whether that's between sponsor and CRO, CRO and site, uh, you know, site and patient, PI and CRA, uh, sponsor company and the PI eventual, it, like it always comes down to, you know, did you build a real relationship where there's exchange of information and problem solving or problem prevention? So it's interesting that, that you got us there as well that the relationship building with your sites is, is sort of key to solving some of your, your problems, so. Absolutely, because you will he, you could hear things about your trial and about your molecule, which you otherwise uh, would not have. And then you, that may lead you on to doing other things uh, for future trials or for that molecule itself. Yep, absolutely. That's how I was trained early on in my career. Let's um, fail or succeed as quickly as possible and with clarity, right? Like, like you yeah. said, the, the worst outcome is like we didn't get one. It's all a big pile. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, let's transition a little bit into some of your expertise and talk about, you know, at this stage, do you have a preferred rating scale in the area that you're studying? Uh, the answer kind of, you know, in, in assessing and picking rating scales, if I may expand your question a bit, is to say that sure. uh, you've got to look at what are your objectives and what, what do you want the rating scale to do, right? So, and then there's a hierarchy. So the first part of the hierarchy is this is a rating scale that the agencies, regulatory agencies have to accept. If they don't, that, that doesn't matter. Then you go on to say, well, what additional information am I getting? What else can I do with that scale? Uh, do I need to do anything else with that scale? So from that point of view, uh, fortunately in Tourette's, uh, there have been other medications that have been approved and the Yale Global Tick Severity Scale is something that is regulatorily approved. So that is the scale that uh, we are using right now. And the good part about that scale is that not only does it give you the symptoms of it, but built into the scale is a sense of impairment. What is this? these ticks, whether they are vocal or phonic, what is the impairment that they're causing to your patients? And uh, does it change? Does it improve? Because ultimately, if the symptoms improve, but if a patient doesn't feel that it is helping them, it doesn't matter much. And over time, as we all know, the regulatory agencies are also looking at impact on patients' lives. So you've got to kind of look at that. So from that point of view, what we are using is the uh, YGTSS, as it gets called. Okay. Oh, thank you. Um, I, you know, you, we often hear about just 
the challenges of you know consistency of raters and standardizing uh, the interview te technique. Can you talk a little bit about how you've gone about handling that? Yes, you know, I mean, when you start designing a study, designing a program, looking at the scale and making sure that it gets applied, you know, a word that very get, gets casually thrown around is training, rater training and certification. And I kind of have to say, uh, think of it this way. You're working with raters and clinicians who've been doing this potentially for years and years, right? And it is uh, maybe a bit of hubris on our part to say that, oh yeah, in a two hour session, we are going to train them to do this. I mean, it really is a, a wrong choice of a word. I've had uh, uh, people who actually written the scales who have been investigators and they say, yeah, so I, you are going to train me on my scale, huh? And that was kind of what drove that point home. Yeah. <laughs> no. We, so approach it as saying that what you're looking for is an agreement and consistency among the raters to say, this is how, as a group for this particular trial, we are going to be using this instrument. That's kind of the approach that you take. So approach it from a, an understanding of where they come from and a respect for their experience and expertise. Start from there and then get that buy-in and then do what would be needed to say, this is how we would be applying the scale for this trial, for, for this particular reason. Once that gets done, then you also let them know that periodically you will be reviewing how they're doing it. And mm -hmm. uh, again, being a small company, uh, I've worked with uh, external solution providers to assess the and monitor the quality of the data coming in periodically. And I'm a very active participant in periodic meetings to look at what they find out. And then once that happens, you then can look at it and say, well, am I seeing it being done the way it should be done? Am I not seeing it? Who needs feedback? Who needs criticism? Who needs critiquing? And you know, it is not just a matter of being a, a nice person and letting people do whatever they want to do. I mean, I've been at investigator meetings where after looking at something, I've said, you know what? I don't want this rater because this is not how I want it to be done. And this is something that they do. So I've stopped raters from uh, participating in trials right at the beginning. There are times you take a look at it and say, provide feedback. And mind you, you're not telling them to go back and change what they've written right. in a trial. You don't do that. But you assess it and you point that out to them. And over a period of time, should you find out that that is not consistent with what you and they had agreed to at the beginning, you may want to stop them. But that's, again, I'm, I'm pointing out the extremes of what all you could do. But the reason for doing that is that it can take uh, not a very large amount of inconsistencies between raters to think your trial. You just have to be very, very careful. You know, simple, simple things. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the scale, the clinical global impression scale, the CGI improvement scale gets used in many, many uh, central nervous system indications. Now, the improvement is based on how severely ill they were at baseline, right? Well, who would remember in a busy clinical research practice how John Smith was three months ago at baseline at exactly what their severity rating was? And if they don't do that and they use a different baseline, you, you won't get your result on what the improvement is. So think of 
put yourself in their mind and then see, figure out how you would do that as well. And then continue on with uh, getting up solutions to that. And you'll find that uh, when you're working with people, when you're working with your solution providers, when you're with rating evaluation companies, ask them that question. And they've given some thought to those things. They'll give you those answers. And then you pick and choose which of those work for you. Or which <laughs> yeah. of those work for you. And you yeah, absolutely. Yep. You're bringing us right back to the beginning of, you know, the importance of the clinical trial design and the methodology to it, because, you know, basically pointing out that, you know, if we don't put this consistency in place and we don't put some energy into preparing and, and aligning this, that you could actually sync a product that has potential um, just because the consistency wasn't there. So I think that's real important, especially to our clinical trial project managers out there trying to run these in the complicated, you know, post-pandemic world, but uh, uh, I'll draw them back to where the way you describe setting expectations, right? You know, you're not teaching them something that they potentially were part of designing, but you are uh, aligning their expectations around the consistent way to implement. So I thought that was, that was good. And, and um, hopefully other people can use that as well. Well, I have enjoyed our conversation immensely. We've gone through quite a few questions and, and explored quite a few topics. Um, what's, is there anything else left that you want to make sure our audience sort of gleans from all the experience that you've had? So there were a, a, probably a couple of three things that I would want to say. One point is that uh, while studies are going on, even though these are blinded trials and you don't want to guess or second guess what might be happening, but you can look at data as they're coming in and make a sense in, of how the trial is proceeding, how I call trial hygiene it's going on. And you look at different time frames, different patients coming in, maybe different regions, to get a sense of how things are. And I think it's important because that will help you communicate with uh, people within your organizations, the different stakeholders, uh, your bosses, your funders, you know, whether it is an academic study or an industry-sponsored study. And if need be, communicate with your sites as well, just to let them know, hey, here are some good things that are happening. Here are some things that you need to watch out for. Again, being a piece of sort of constant communication. So from that point of view, that's something that we've done, that I've done. Uh, yeah, I think that's going to be, yeah, sorry to, I think that's going to be really important because, you know, think about all of the studies we basically have to do um, looking at the data before, during, and after the pandemic, right? To be able to say that, you know, fundamentally it either really significantly impacted this study or it yeah. didn't, right? We're all doing studies about our studies in order to step back and say, yep, our study was successfully completed or, actually it really got impacted and we have to go back to the drawing board. So I think, yeah, that's a, we're going to have, so, it's like double studies. Yeah, absolutely. I think probably the other thing that I may say is again, from a broader perspective, understand that uh, uh, sponsor organizations are different. I mean, you, you, you know, you have the large companies, you have the startups, you have the intermediate companies, you have companies that have uh, products on the market and are doing things and each are, of those may be different. So you'd have people like MLX, uh, which is supported by another company, which moves, which moves as you have others where the founders have come together and are starting it. And so depending on where you are, so whether you are understand your circumstances of what your realities are and make sure that you're working to optimize what you can do, because ultimately anything that you can do that will move your molecule forward, your treatment forward, is going to help people, patients. And you know, 
sooner or later, all of us are going to be need, needing treatment for something or the other. So yes, while you're doing it for everybody else to a part, no man's an island, you may be doing it for yourself as well. So that'd be the other thing that I would say. Oh, well, we could keep probably sharing um, all of your careers uh, learnings for, for quite some time. Um, but I think that that's a good place uh, to leave it for our audience. Um, you know, I appreciate all the time that you spent with us uh, today. Where can people learn more about MLX uh, or yourself? Google. <laughs> yeah, standard <laughs> answer, right? So, so we have a website, uh, mlxbiosciences.com. Uh -huh. uh, it will tell you, you know, we, have, we are a single molecule company as of right now, but we have two different indications. So we are studying it in Tourette's and we are also studying Ecopipam in adults with uh, fluency disorders, so stuttering. So that's also a trial that is currently ongoing. And we're actually thinking of some other trials as well, which I cannot, which haven't sort of been completely sorted out, but we can find out from there. And there's a link to where and what I'm doing. And also uh, I'm involved in at least a couple of different organizations uh, that look at trials and trials methodology. So there's the International Society of CNS Clinical Trials and Methodology, uh, which has been around for 15 years, uh, meets twice a year, President's Day weekend and in the fall. And there's another organization called the CNS Summit, which meets once a year. So these are people, these are places where like-minded people congregate and uh, uh, my wife calls it the trial nerds, the methodology <laughs> nerds. I like to refer to ourselves as we are the trialistas uh, in, interested in methodology in wanting to do things. And I think, uh, and other than that, uh, I think uh, you can reach out to me at amahab at mlxbiosciences.com. It's there out on the web. And always, always happy to help uh, anyone on this journey because it makes people's lives better. That is great. And that is definitely the point of our interview series, just sharing our learnings and um, helping others not have to um, make or endure the same mistakes we have. So appreciate you putting that out there. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the Archmedics newsletter or hit the subscribe button on the YouTube channel so you will be notified about future episodes. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Conversations in Clinical Trial Readiness. If you're interested in learning more about our team, head to our website, archimedics.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you like what you've just heard, please share with a friend and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Thanks for joining us.